I want to dedicate today's class uh, in loving memory of a good friend of Torch, a good friend of mine personally. Uh, maybe y'all know him. He's a leader in the Jewish community. His name is Steve Rudolph. Uh, he passed away tragically yesterday in an accident. Uh, he was riding his motorcycle back from Shul, from Beth Yishurn, uh, and a drunk driver hit him and killed him. Really, really disastrous. Uh, and of course, it's you know it's just terrifying the fact that you could be in shul one day and you're young and you're vibrant and maybe you're you're in your forties or fifties and uh, and then you know just before you know it you're you know you moved on to a different world. Uh, he was um, he was a very good friend of Torch. He came to a lot of classes, but he was also like an active leader. I think he'd be an inspiration. And I was thinking, I realized this last night that um, last time I gave this, I spoke about this topic. Uh, Steve has a chavura, or had a chavura, of 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 of, 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 of a Jewish community in um, in Sugarland, and they meet once a, once a month, and they have a rabbi come speak to them. So he asked me if I could come speak to them, uh, and it was right before Purim uh, this year. So I said sure, and I went there and I spoke on this topic. Uh, it was a Purim centric discussion, but uh, it covered a lot of what we're going to cover today. Uh, and I think it's kind of fitting that, that we're going to dedicate the class today uh, on the same issue that I spoke about uh, at his uh, collection of of, uh, of of Jews coming to study Torah. And I think it would be inspiration for us, the fact that, uh, you know, even as lay people, people that don't have advanced degrees in rabbinics or in Judaics, we could still do our part in trying to proliferate Torah and you know, have people come together uh, and be uh, contributors towards increasing Jewish learning and Jewish affiliation and Jewish vibrancy and Jewish synagogue membership, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Okay, so I want to give a little introduction to the topic, <coughs> which I know I certainly didn't do last time. Uh, and I think I don't know if you guys saw the story, but I think this week the one of the last nails in the coffin of the idea that the theory of evolution can be a total replacement to God in explaining the origin of species. You know, this is an idea that has been very popular uh, and really the norm uh, in, in the scientific world and uh, in the scholarship, world of scholarship and certainly the sciences. Uh, and of course, it treaded into the, the, the theological world as well, that we finally found a way or another alternative to, uh, to take God out of the equation, and now we can explain everything without uh, the hand of, uh, of, of any sort of intelligent guide. Uh, this week, there came a story, uh, it was a study, that uh, vastly changed the estimate of how many species exist in the world. Previously, the numbers that I saw were anywhere between 1.25 million different distinct species uh, up to a high of 8.7 million species. And uh, this week uh, a study was published wherein that number was changed not from the millions nor the billions but even as high as a trillion different distinct species in this uh, planet. Uh, A number so vast and many of them being single-cell organisms that kind of have to develop on their own, can't develop from some other single-celled organisms that really make 
the argument of you know trying to plot out how this all happens without God really preposterous. Uh, and um, as an aside, I think that there's always going to be an alternative. The Almighty created the world in a way where there's a possibility always to reject God. You know, if, if, if it's very unnatural for God to come and give us prophecy and do miracles and remove all doubt that we could possibly have. Because you remove all doubt, you remove free will. You remove free will, well, then there's no purpose. If you cannot reject God, then accepting God really has no value. So there has to always be some sort of possibility to, uh, to say that, well, no, it's not necessary, or, well, it's, it's not logical, or whatever, or uh, religion kills more people, or the more wars of order for religion, which doesn't disprove anything, just like saying, well, no, well, the second most common reason for wars is religion. The first is about territories. Maybe we shouldn't live anywhere, right? The fact that more people die in wars because of fights over territory doesn't mean we should try to live in the moon, right? We all, we all still live here. Uh, and that maybe indeed proves the importance of it. Like it's, it's, but, it's a, but it's an argument that you hear all the time, even though it doesn't make any sense logically. The, the, the legitimacy of the argument of, of religion or God has to be based on its own merits, not the fact that some people use it for nefarious things. Uh, but either way, there always is going to be a replacement. And for the past 150 years, the, uh, the idea of evolution uh, really filled those roles. And I think today, that's becoming more and more infeasible. Uh, my theory is that the next kind of frontier of, of uh, alternatives to accepting God and all that that implies is going to be the question of attention. You know, our, we live in a world, especially with young people, where they don't really have gaps in their attention. You know, like besides for like taking showers. It's like, I, was thinking, I told someone this recently, I said, thankfully we have Shabbos with no cell phones. Otherwise, like, when would we ever be by ourselves? Like, we, you know, besides for the shower, that's it. We have showers and Shabbos. That, that's all we have. Because otherwise, like, and there's, if there's never a break, if you go from thing to thing, right, and you see people by... Uh, I'm sorry if I'm going into one of those rants, but you see people by the stop sign. They're waiting for the light, and boom, they're all on the phone, right? So there really is never a time where people can even stop and consider and ponder and probe and explore and analyze and let their mind kind of uh, examine and weigh the options and, and ask the critical questions about what life is all about. If there's, no, if there's never an attention, well, then that question is never debated. And if it's never, deba- or never debated properly, and if it's not debated properly, okay, we have an alternative. Don't ask, don't tell, don't pursue. Uh, but either way, uh, um, all this is a way of trying to look at the legacy of evolution uh, because the, 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 one of the core ideas is that the world is constantly improving. We go from, uh, we go from less developed to more complex. Right? We go from... Uh, more primordial, more primitive, to more developed, to more sophisticated over time. Uh, now, this idea kind of goes from like a, like a molecular level as well, but also to like sophistication of people. Like we look at ourselves, or society tends to look at ourselves today as being more moral and being more sophisticated and being more intellectually aware uh, and more developed. 
than, uh, than people, than the barbarians that lived thousands of years. And to a certain degree, that's, that's of course, true. Uh, of course, we have the idea of Tikkun Olam, and the idea of Mashiach, and the idea of progress. That is always, even in, 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 in the Jewish perspective, that is always an idea of we have a broken world, and we're here to fix it. And we fix it progressively, right? The, the, more, the more we fix, the better it gets, and that's indeed true. But Judaism has an idea uh, that the individuals and the ideas of yesteryear are much grander than the ideas that we have today. The capacity, the spiritual capacity of the souls of Sinai and the preceding generations, it gets progressively less potent and less capable. As an example, uh, the idea of us producing another Maimonides is, you know, we spend time, of course, uh, studying his impact, but that, of course, to us is unimaginable. You know, because he comes from uh, a variety of people that are a thousand years closer to Sinai. You're closer to Sinai, and you know means you're, you're less distant not only in time but also in ideology, in perspective, in, in behavior. Uh, and you know, in this vein, we understand the the reverence that we pay to the ancient books. Of course, you know, we it's bizarre. You ask people, how's it possible the most influential book that the Jews have is 3,500 years ago? Wouldn't that be updated? Can't, that, can't we improve with modern technology? Yeah? Let's scrap out the theories and, and retest it. And the answer is, yeah, that's not the way we work. We look at the Torah as being the best document and the original document, and us still paying yet the same reverence. And the Talmud, how much how many man hours are spent studying Talmud uh, in, in the Jewish world? An enormous amount of human capital because... We value that much more than the books uh, that were published uh, afterwards. And to, to, to uh, people in the greater society, that seems bizarre. You know, that seems like it's outdated, it's obsolete. Uh, and what is new is better, and what is new is more correct, and what is new is removing uh, mistakes that we may have had prior. And I think a good way... Um, this is a very long introduction, but a good way to kind of uh, um, a good way to kind of look at how we can find truth in books that are so old in areas that are particularly perplexing and vexing to our society kind of brings this point home. Uh, you know, I think today we're going to talk about love. Um, we're going to talk about what the Torah says about that specifically and kind of how that plays out for us today. Uh, I can think of, maybe this is the best example, of where today our society, our world, really doesn't really have a clue of how to navigate this foundational element of human life. Um, we see people getting married and divorced at alarming numbers. Uh, you know, we see people having... Uh, you know, relationships go south even beyond the percentages that end up in, sever, in severing uh, it entirely. There are those that just are so miserable and, and it causes so much pain and suffering not only to the people involved but to the children and all the other collateral damage that happens and, you know, the divorce lawyers and, like it's, it's, and, they, and it's so pervasive in our society. And the question is, why if we're so advanced and so sophisticated and we finally figure out everything else how come this is so confusing to us? 
And then when we look at what the Torah says, and it seems so different, you know, so out of the, such out of the box thinking. And then when we try to explicate that, and we 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 delve into it, and we we examine, and we probe, we find insights that really could radically alter our thinking, and is in direct opposition to what society today says, and it becomes clear that, you know, we can look back, and we can look back at the Torah, and ideas that are thousands of years old, that are ever, as ever relevant as they ever were uh, uh, today. That's the introduction. I don't think I said that last time. <laughs> okay, so, uh, what does the Torah say about love? So, we find something very bizarre, just the, the, you know, by, at first glance. We find in the book of Leviticus, in fact, we're going to read it next week, it says as follows, do not take revenge, and then it gives another word for revenge, it's different, two different kinds of revenge against the people of your nation, you should love your fellow as yourself, I am God. And this, of course, is very famous, and even in the general population. Uh, this was, like many other themes, plagiarized by other religions. Uh, but we're told that this is a mitzvah in the Torah, wherein we're commanded to love everyone as ourselves. Uh, and, um, of course, this, just in first glance, seems like a very difficult mitzvah to fulfill. Uh, healthy people love themselves a lot. They love themselves perhaps more than anyone else in the world. Healthy people uh, from day one are always looking to improve their situation. They feel their own pain. They're looking for their own betterment, for their own improvement. And then we're told those associations, that emotion, that positive feeling that you have to yourself, you have to give to everyone else. And that, of course... How, why, how do we do that? How can we possibly... Is this metaphoric? And indeed, that's not the only time that we're told to love someone or something. We're told, this is from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 10, we have to love the convert or the foreigner. The word convert and foreigner in Hebrew is the same word, ger. Why? Because you, Jewish people, were foreigners in the land of Egypt. So someone converts, we've got to love that person as well. And lastly, in the book of Deuteronomy as well, very famous verse, Ve'ahavta es Hashem elokecha, you have to love the Almighty God with all your hearts, with all your soul, and with all your resources. Thus, we are commanded to love our fellow as ourselves, we're commanded to love the convert, because we too were foreigners in the land of Egypt, and we're commanded to love God with all our hearts, which the Talmud tells us means our, we have two hearts, multiple hearts. We have the Yetzir Tov and the Yetzir the good and evil inclination. With all our soul, even if it means giving up our life, with all our resources, we have to love God. Uh, now, mitzvahs, right, uh, the, the definition of the word mitzvah, or the, the translation of the word mitzvah, uh, uh, has been... Um, corrupted, I would say, a little bit in today's society because we think of it as a, as a good thing. Um, mitzvah, of course, is a good thing, but if you want to translate from Hebrew, the word mitzvah or tzivu, it means instruction, commandment. We have loads, of hundreds of commandments in the Torah, and three of them are commandments to have emotions 
an emotion of love towards our fellow man, towards the convert, and towards God. Now, these mitzvahs are not optional. It's not like, it's not like we opt in. You know, love whomever you want. Love those people that you want to love. And you, know, you don't have to be that loving to people that you have a hard time getting along with. That's not what it says. And in fact, uh, to contend that these are optional uh, would be inappropriate because we see, we know, we, that th- these are central themes in our religion. Rabbi Kiva famously says, You should love your fellows yourself. This is a foundational, fundamental principle of Torah. Uh, additionally, we're told in the Talmud and Shabbos 31a that the convert, or the potential convert, who comes, the Gentile, comes to, to, to Hillel and tells, tells them, Hillel, teach me all of Torah while I'm standing on one leg. And he says to him, oh, I'll teach you all of Torah while I'm standing on one leg. No problem. That that you dislike, don't do to others, which is a play on the same idea. That that you don't like, don't do to others. That is Torah. Everything else is commentary. So we're told, like, this is not only a truthism about Torah. This is a central point about Torah. To say that this is some sort of, uh, it's, it's some sort of metaphor, some sort of idea that, you know, it's, 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 that's supposed to be there, but not really. It's a trope. There's no tropes in Torah. It, this is a halacha, this is a mitzvah. And it seems, you know, face value to be uh, a bit unreasonable to expect. The Torah obviously is going to ask of us things that are things we can fulfill, and this to us, seems very difficult to fulfill. How are we going to fulfill this? Love everyone as ourselves. Maybe you love your, love your spouse, your children, your neighbor. Well, it depends which neighbor. But it, it seems like it's a lot to ask of us. What about loving God? We have a hard time even understanding what God even means. You know, if we were to have a class in Jewish theology, it would be a very naughty subject. But why? Because it's not clear. God is beyond our comprehension. While we can prove the existence of God, as to exactly defining what that is, by definition, is going to be something that's very hard for us to, to define because the idea of God is an idea that is not bound by the same constraints and the same physics that dominate our world. So having a definition for this idea is difficult, yet we're commanded to love God, to have an emotion. And not only that, this is one of the six constant mitzvahs. This is one of the endgame mitzvahs. There are six mitzvahs that are the purpose of all the mitzvahs to bring us towards loving God is one of them. Uh, and it's one of the two ways that we relate to God. It's one, one of the two ways, one of the two modes of relationship that we can have with God is one, love God or fear God. So it's a central part of our religion. So uh, to say that these things are kind of metaphoric or they're not literal is, you know, it, it's, 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 it's likely a mistake. Now, I, you know, I think if we were going to enumerate the questions, we would say like this. Number one, how is it fair, how is it possible to command love, to command an emotion? If I say, hey, put on tefillin. Okay, what tefillin? You get tefillin, you put them on. But erect a mezuzah in your door. Fine, you get a mezuzah, you buy the mezuzah, you put it up, you're done. You know, shake a lulav, eat matzah, right? Light your menorah, whatever it is. Like these are things, these are actions. Uh, to have an emotion, that seems to be, you know, how, how do you, how, how do I say like this? Don't like that. Now, as an aside, our society does tell that as well. You know, there are certain 
emotions that in today's society we, uh, you know, we cannot have. There's some things which are inappropriate, even though, well, what if, what if I feel like that? Well, you can't feel like that. Uh, yet our society kind of determines what falls into that category and, 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 what, and what doesn't. <clears throat> I'm sorry? You could feel that way. No one can tell you not to feel that way, but you can't act on it. So that so so yeah okay I I would agree. Like you, anger, you could be angry as long as you don't display the anger, right? right. Um, you know you could want to sin as long as you don't sin. And in fact, that's a mitzvah to to restrain yourself. Uh, but. Um, and, and commonly, some people will make the argument, and I've heard this argument every time I've spoken about this, I've heard the same argument. Well, maybe the Torah says, but to, when the Torah says, love your fellow, it means behave towards him with love, him or her with love. And uh, that would, you know, I think that would, that would be true as well, of course. Uh, but that's not the simple understanding of that. That's a little bit of, 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 uh, of, uh, of um uh, of an elaboration that we don't have. And in fact, there are a lot of other mitzvahs that talk about actions, behaviors of love towards your fellow. You got, we're told in Torah, someone comes to borrow money, you have to lend the money right? if, you have, if you have the capacity to. We have mitzvahs of, of kindness. Like These are actions of love, and this seems to be beyond that. It seems to have an emotion. Um, okay, so that's where we're going to get to. I think what, what's clear is the Torah is telling us is that this is a learnable skill. There's some sort of formula that we could follow to get there. And the question is, what is that? How do we you know, dig in into the mechanics of what determines the feelings that we have towards other people, the feelings we have towards converts, towards God? How can we manipulate that? Because remember, if you can manipulate that, then... This entire world that is so dis, you know, that, that is so difficult for us uh, uh, to, to get right, maybe we can fix that as well. So it means the benefit of, of learning this formula is, is beyond the mitzvah. The mitzvah is maybe what we're obligated to do, but once we learn this skill, we'll see how it can really change our lives, our relationships, and not only that, it can have very far-reaching effects in, in, our, in the entirety of our life. That's true, and and that's that's true. Hopefully, Um, you're right uh, that with our spouse, this this also is is. um, I agree, but unfortunately, uh, the facts are that a lot of people maybe don't exactly follow the formula, or maybe don't know what the formula is, or maybe they know they need to love them, but they don't love them, and they hate them, and they want to get divorced. So that happens a lot. It's just a fact. It's very disturbing to talk about it, but it's a fact. And, and if we knew a formula to avoid that, our lives and our marriages and our relationships can be improved, I think. Well, there's some psychology experiments that show that if you pretend an emotion... You'll get there. You'll get Fake there. until you make it. And um, if, I know there's one with smiling, where somebody who's not happy is told to smile. And just the smile lifts their mood mm-hmm. and makes them happier. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, interesting. So yeah, I, w- I would agree to that as well, of course, that uh, we could do things to artificially kind of engender certain feelings. Okay, so let, let, let's see, I agree. Um, let's, let's, let's dig into here uh, a little bit. So what's a few ad- issues that need to be addressed uh, off the top? We're told you to love your fellow as yourself. So if I love myself, I don't know, 55 units of love, I have to love everyone else and also 55 units of love. There's one problem with that. Well, there's a few problems with that. First of all, that does seem a little bit unrealistic, right? It's, it's you know, we love ourselves a lot. Our, our, the majority of our lives is trying to improve our status, you know, our, um, in, in whatever uh, field. Uh, and to tell that, that we should look out for someone else as much as we look out, look out for ourselves, that seems a little bit difficult. Number one. Number two, the Talmud makes it very clear, Jewish law makes it very clear, that uh, if I have a bottle of water, for example, this is the case where the Talmud brings it in. I, I got one bottle of water, and we're in, the, we're in the desert. Whoever drinks the bottle of water survives. I'm working with my fellow. So if I love him as myself, then maybe I should give it to him. I'll let him survive. The Talmud makes it clear, Chayecha Kodmin which means your life precedes, supersedes his life. Well, if it's equal, shouldn't it be equal? Then maybe it should be a coin flip, or maybe I should give it to the other guy, because that's the mitzvah. But we're told that, you know, you have to save yourself before you save someone else. Kind of like they do in the airplanes, right? Put the mask on yourself before helping someone else, right? I guess there is one area of contemporary life where uh, they are invoking something from uh, yesteryear. But that's only so that should be disoriented, of course, yeah. Um, but either way, if, if my life supersedes someone else, can we really say that I love me and my fellow uh, as much? So I, I think that we're going to do this a lot today, but we're going to look at what does it mean as yourself? As yourself does not necessarily mean with the same quantity as yourself. Rather, it could potentially mean with the same quality, the same method of love, the same feelings of love that you have that are not based upon a commandment to do so. So, for example, I say, okay, see this guy? He's not the most put together. Love him. Take care of him. So what do you say? Well, it's a mitzvah to do it. So I'm going to fulfill a mitzvah of the Almighty. I'm going to love him. I can't stand him, but I'm, I don't love him. Anyhow. Well, do we love ourselves because it's a mitzvah to love ourselves? Did anyone tell us as a child, you know, when you don't get the ice cream, you are instructed to scream till you get it? No. The child naturally loves themselves. It's trying to do the best and acquire the most and the best, right? They love themselves. Not because anyone told them to love themselves, but because they just have an emotion of love towards themselves. The Torah, let's say the Torah told us, love your fellow. What would you say? Okay, here's my tzitzis, and here's my tefillin. This is a mitzvah. I'll love him. I'll clench my nose and I'll love him. The Torah says, no, 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 no. Love him as yourself. What we need to achieve is that you love him, not as much as yourself, but in the same manner that you love yourself. Not because you were instructed to do so, not because of some sort of mitzvah, not because you're fulfilling some sort of religious function to love yourself. No, you have to love him. Just love him. And of course, this makes our task even more difficult. 
How are we going to achieve an emotion of love towards someone? And it's not like we could say we're doing something, we're doing X, and that fulfills our obligation. We have to actually get to the feeling, the emotional feeling that we feel love towards that person. How do we do that? And not only that, we're told to love the convert, but doesn't the convert already fall into the first category? Love the fellow as yourself? That's a good question. Like, there seems to be a redundant. Yeah, it seems to be redundant. It seems redundant, right? You already love everyone, so of course the convert would be included in that. So let's try to give more, some answers. I know we've got a lot of questions now. Let's try to give some answers. Let's look at the first time love is mentioned in the Torah. Because maybe this can shine the light, this can um, uh, open the window onto what the Torah thinks love is, and thus how can we do what the Torah wants us to do. And of course, uh, the benefits will extend to our life here today as well. So the first time that there is a mention of someone loving someone else in the Torah is in the budding love life of Isaac and Rebekah. Uh, Abraham instructs his slave, Eliezer, to go east to his family to find a spouse for Isaac. He goes and he meets Rebekah, of course, the whole story with the camels, the whole deal. He has to negotiate with the family. They agree to send Rebekah back west to Israel. She's traveling. He has all the camels. She meets Isaac and she falls off the camel. He really, like, you know, he really, uh, I guess, uh, uh, he, he was shocking or he was so wonderful that she was so excited, however you want to interpret that. Either way, and then it says as follows. This is a verse from Genesis, I think it's chapter 24. I've never written down where exactly it is. And Isaac brought her to the tent of Sarah, his mother. Remember, Sarah had died uh, a little bit prior. And he married Rebekah, and she became to him a wife. And he loved her. And he was consoled after his mother. So if you examine this verse, you'll find something very interesting. So we're describing the marriage and the love of Isaac and Rebekah. And we are invoking Sarah multiple times. And Isaac brought her, brought Rebekah, to the tent of Sarah, his mother. He married her. She became a wife for him. He loved her. And he was consoled. He finally, he, he was finally consoled after the tragedy of the death of his mother. And the question is, why are we talking about his mother so much? Like, the, you know, this is like the intrusive mother-in-law. I have my, I had a, I have my notes here, like, a few mother-in-law jokes in case it wasn't going so well, but I think it's going fine. <laughs> so what's going on here? Like, why is Sarah playing such a pivotal role? You know, she's been dead for, you know, a couple of years now. Why is she playing such a central role in this discussion? So, of course, Rashi asked the question. Remember, any time, as we learned last time, Rashi will always explain what's going on in the verse. You read this verse, you read it quickly, it goes fine. You examine it, you'll notice a few questions. And right away, if you just saw the verse and you examined it, you would know that Rashi would answer those, answer those questions. Because Rashi is going to answer any question that's going to have, uh, that's going to inhibit the understanding of the verse. Simply. The, the simple understanding of the verse. So Rashi says like this. When Sarah was alive, there were miracles ever present in her tent. 
miracle number one, when she would light candles on Friday afternoon for Shabbat, those candles would last till the following Shabbat. Right? Instead of the candles extinguishing three or four hours later, depending on the size of the candles, there was a miracle. It lasted for a long time, kind of uh, echoing the miracle of, of Hanukkah many decades, many centuries later. Miracle number one. Miracle number two, she would make the dough for the challah. She made challah every Friday, I would assume, like for Shabbos. And she would make a little bit of dough, and she would be able to make hundreds of loaves. Remember, Abraham's house was a center of hospitality. There were always people coming and going. Our kids are taught in, in, in day school that Abraham's tent had four entrances, one from the north, south, east, and the west, welcoming guests from wherever they came. So you would imagine that the typical Friday night dinner in Abraham's house, would, there would be a lot of people there. So, so Sarah makes the dough, and before you know it, there's loads and loads and loads of dough. Okay, miracle number two. And miracle number three, there was an ever-present cloud hovering on top of the tent. Three miracles. Sarah dies. And you know what goes with her? The miracles. And for a few years, the tent, Sarah's tent, is bereft of those miracles. So Isaac brings his new young bride, he brings her to the tent of Sarah, and he marries her. What happens? All the miracles come back. The candles lasting from Friday to Friday. There's blessing of the dough. There's an ever-present cloud hovering over the tent. Isaac realizes that Rebecca is an adequate replacement, so to speak, for his mother. She is on the same level as Sarah, the great matriarch and the founder you know, together with Abraham of our religion and our people. He realizes that Rebecca has got the goods. You know, she is worthy of continuing on this legacy of Abraham. And he loves her. And he's consoled after his mother. When you read the verse in, 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 uh, with the understanding that Rashi provides, we see that the love that Isaac has to Rebecca is linked to his understanding of Rebecca's character. He realizes that Rebecca is someone who's a wonderful woman. Like she's, she, you know, she, she, she's pious, you know, she's kind, she, she's worthy of founding a, the great nation, the Jewish people. And that engenders the love. If you notice in the verse, it says that he, he married her before he loved her. It was only after he recognized her qualities, her virtues, only after that did he love her. Now, put that, uh, let's put that on the side for, for a little bit. In, in, um, in uh, one of the institutions that I studied and I taught in, in Israel, Rabbi Noah Weinberg was famous for saying as follows. He was saying, love is the pleasure that you get when you recognize the virtue in another human and you identify them with those virtues. This is what he would always say. You come to yeshiva and you learn the definition of love. Well, among a million other things. That's what he said. Love is the pleasure you get when you see the virtue, you recognize the virtue in another human being, and you identify them with those virtues, which sounds very different, I would say, than the definition, perhaps, that we could 
come up today if we were to take a poll in greater society. Love is the virtue, is the pleasure of the recognition of the virtue in someone else. You see someone else has good qualities and you identify them, you associate them with those qualities, that's what love is. And for years I was wondering, where does he pull that up? And it seems like this verse really spells it out for us, once you understand it with Rashi. Isaac identified the virtues of Rebecca. He recognized her qualities. He realized, wow, this is an amazing woman, and that's why he loved her. And indeed, this opens up the door for a repeatable formula of how we too can have love. If we recognize the good, the virtue, the qualities, the positive aspects of another human being, and we label them, we identify them, we associate them with those qualities, we'll love them. Simple as that. Now, everyone has something good about them, something bad about them. There's no perfect human being. There's no one without sin. You know, by definition, we're here to do something, to improve, to become better people. Thus, we have something going for us, we have something going against us. Everyone, everyone's like that. And people are different because some people have uh, strengths in, in, in certain areas and weaknesses in other areas, and other people, it's the opposite. But everyone, we're all a collection of positive and negative character. That's what we all are. So essentially, the only question that exists as to whether or not I will love someone, the only question is, what will I choose to recognize from their collection, from their repertoire of positive and negative character? What am I going to choose to identify them with? For some people, of course, you know, uh, maybe people have a higher percentage of positive character, so it's easier to love them because there's more to love, so to speak, about them. But everyone has redeeming qualities. Right? Oh, let's put that as almost everyone. I'm preempting the question that I know was everyone was asking. Almost everyone. Uh, certainly, almost every Jew. Right? Uh, we, you know, we have good qualities. Of course, we all have bad qualities as well. So it's possible for me to love and hate almost every human being on the planet. The question is not about them; it's about me. What am I going to zone in on in their character? Am I going to look at the fact that they're impatient? Or am I going to look at the fact that they're kind? Am I going to look at the fact that they're intelligent and capable and driven? Or am I going to look at the fact that they're quick to anger? Or, you know, a little bit prickly? You know, uh, or a little bit of a different tempo? That's the only question. The question is me, not them. If ever, it's possible to love and hate almost everyone. And there's the formula that we have to follow is, you know, it's very clear. You, you see someone, what are you seeking out? What are you looking for? What are you trying to draw about them to kind of identify who they are and if you're going to like them or not? If you're always looking for the positive, if you're always looking to identify, to seek out what is good, what is admirable about their character, invariably you'll find something. And if you take that thing and you label them as that, you identify them with their positive qualities, with their successes and not their failures, well, then you love them. 
it's developed, developed this idea as well. Love your fellow as yourself. How do we identify ourselves? How do we view ourselves? We view our mistakes as aberrations and our successes as what defines us. Yet, when we see someone else making a mistake, we have a tendency to label them as that. That's not their aberration. That's who they are. And maybe their successes, that's a fluke. I know who they really are, right? I've seen things. But who hasn't seen things amongst themselves? Love your fellow as yourself. Just give them the same courtesy you have to yourself. We don't view ourselves as villains. Even though we know we've done some pretty bad things, everyone has. We've done things that we're not proud of. But what do we say? We justify it. Well, I, I didn't have a good night's sleep last night. You know, I shouldn't have said that. But come on, I didn't have my coffee and there was traffic on the way to work. Right? We're, we're, that's very natural. And I think, I'm not trying to say we should change that. But love your fellow as yourself. Maybe give them the same courtesy as you give yourself. Maybe when they make a mistake, you don't automatically say, whoa, where did this guy come from? Maybe you ask yourself. Maybe he also was up at the middle of the night with the crying baby, or, right? Or maybe he, you know, he didn't have his coffee. Well, I don't care about his coffee. Well, you care about your own coffee, and you're quick to justify your mistakes as aberrations because of some of their causes. Well, love your fellow as yourself. Just give them the same courtesy. Benefit. Same benefit of the doubt, exactly. You know, um, what happens when you make a mistake? It's embarrassing. You do something, you say something, you mispronounce a word, right? It happens a lot. I had a friend of mine who was, uh, was speaking in front of 400 people. Which word did he say? I think he said epitome, he said epitome, because he just read it in books, never heard someone pronounce it. If you ever like want to wrinkle him, you just say, oh, this is the epitome. You know, just say that, right? And suddenly they're like, ah, don't say that, right? You know, but then when you pronounce, mispronounce something, you're like, hope everyone forgets it. Why? Well, that's not fear. Love your fellow as yourself. Just, just the same way you want to be treated, treat others. That that you hate, don't do to others. And like you said, you're 100% right. Judging favorably. That's an extension of this. And we'll see this theme kind of uh, um, spidering into other areas. You're right. Lo- judging favorably is an extension of this mitzvah. We can really see how Rabbi really plumbed the depths of this idea and told us this is foundational for all of Torah. Because indeed, you're right. To judge favorably, and all that comes with that is an extension of just extending the love that you have to yourself to someone else. Now, we could view this as a series of isolated decisions, or, uh, like Lydia mentioned, it's, it's a switch. It's something that we have to kind of reformulate and repurpose and you know, change about the way we deal with other people. Uh, because by default, we notice the bad in others. That jumps out at us. And to see the good in others, right, that takes practice. That's take, that, 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 that takes uh, work. Um, I spoke uh, a couple of weeks ago about... Uh, it was a wedding celebration. My uh, Chai's brother, my brother-in-law, uh, he was getting, he got married, and uh, and, the, and they have the seven days of celebration. So it was the night after the wedding. That's me to speak. Uh, and I said to them a story 
of Rabbi Chaim Shmuel. Who's Rabbi Chaim Shmuel Levitz? Rabbi Chaim Shmuel Levitz was a European rabbi who managed, was the head of one of the great institutions, the Mir Yeshiva, uh, in, in, in Europe. And then when the entire Yeshiva went to Shanghai, he was the, at the helm and then ultimately in Israel as well. So he once said that he knows thousands of positive character traits about his wife. Thousands. Oh, you would think so, right? But, you know, he was, he spent, you know, his, his prodigious intelligence with regards to his relationships as always trying to find more and more good. And he could say he could identify thousands of different positive character characteristics of his wife. Now, even if his wife was the most wonderful person on the planet, then maybe she was. She was. And she had sterling character in every, in, 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 in every facet of her behavior. Even if that was true, like you said, we have a hard time even identifying ten, you know. Uh, but the truth is that, that someone's behavior, there's a whole world. And the, there's a lot of nuance. And unless you look for it, unless you try to seek it out, you may not even be aware of it. Because that takes work. And like I said, it's a switch because we start off right, with, by default, seeing the negative and ignoring the good, unless it's so overwhelming. Uh, and perhaps our life goal is, one of our life's goals as, as Jews will be to make that switch. Perhaps we can live in a world where everyone looks out for the good, notices the good in others, and when other people make a mistake, we'll ignore it. You know, not ignore it if it's dangerous, of course. But you know, ignore it. Someone, made, someone said something, someone blurted something out. Let that pass. You know, because we give ourselves the same thing. I want to go a step further here. Perhaps a step deeper is correct. More correct. Why are we biased? Why, by default, don't we give someone the same courtesy that we give ourselves? Human nature is that we treat ourselves differently than someone else. Right? We are we. Like I'm, I'm, I'm connected to myself, and everyone's connected to themselves. And someone else says, well, that's not me. I am me. They're not me. And whatever is included in me is something that I am going to defend. And something I'm going to look, look for their betterment and try to improve. And give all these courtesies. What does it say? Love your fellow as yourself. Perhaps on the deeper level, it's telling you there's a reason why you love yourself. Whatever's included under the canopy of you is something that you love. Why don't you make a little bit of a bigger canopy and welcome others under it? Maybe if you treat others like yourself, if they were like you, well, then you would love them by default. By way of, 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 of saying this in other words, instead of trying to fix you know, uh, all the symptoms of the problem, change the problem itself. The reason why there is a discrepancy between the way I treat myself and the way I treat others is because I am me and they're not me. And the human psychology, for whatever reason, is that I look out for myself and I, you know, others, maybe they're even a threat. Okay, so I can try to fix it with this guy and with that guy and with that guy and with that guy. But what if I just fix the problem 
and then the solution will happen automatically by, by default. What if I say, okay, you know who's me? My spouse is me. And indeed, that's, that's very natural, that's very healthy to say that it's not just, it's not just me plus you, it's, it's, we're a team, we're together. When something hurts you, it hurts me as well. And of course, that's what marriage really is about. We're taking our eye, so to speak, and we're expanding it to include something beyond ourselves. And what happens when we have children? You have expectant family. Of course, now you have to announce it all on Facebook, right? So they're about to have their first child. They're so excited. And you ask the parents, okay, you're going to love your child? I would probably advise if you're going to ask this, maybe ask the dad, not the mom. Let's assume we ask the mom. You're going to love this child? Well, of course. Let's say them like this. Okay, well, is it, is it possible? What if your child is an obnoxious brat like your neighbor's child? It's possible. You're still going to love him? What are they going to say? Well, of course. They haven't even met him yet. They haven't even met him yet, exactly. <laughs> how, how do you know that you're going to love them? The answer is because the child is an extension of you. You love yourself. Even, even the obnoxious brats love themselves. But there are people who don't love themselves. That's true. That's, not, that's true. But healthy people love themselves. Yeah. That's, I would agree with 100%. And maybe perhaps we can say, if you don't love yourself, you're not capable of loving others as well. Because the Torah is telling you, you love yourself, that's a given. Now extend that to other people. If we don't love ourselves, perhaps we cannot, we're not capable of loving others. But the reason why parents love even obnoxious children is because they don't view their children as something beyond themselves. They view their children, they're not even aware of this, maybe the inner workings of this, but they view their children as an extension of themselves. If your child is you, you don't need to be told to love them as yourself, they already are yourself. And the hope is that as we grow and develop spiritually, what is ourself expands and expands. And by the way, I'll tell you guys another secret here. The reason why acclamation in marriage is difficult is specifically because of this point. You live your whole life, and the thing that you defend, your turf, so to speak, is you. I've said this before, I'll say it again. The verse in Exodus describes, Exodus 19, describes a single person as someone who comes with the edge of their clothing. If the Jewish slave comes with his shirt, he leaves with his shirt. Which means, if the Jewish slave comes unmarried, he leaves unmarried. Why, of all the descriptions we could possibly give to bachelor men, why would we say they come with their shirt? The answer is, in the beginning of our lives, before we include others in our world, our world ends where our clothing ends. Everything else is, is, is not ourselves. So the first time in someone's life where they have to break their identity, crack it to create a new one, is their marriage. For a marriage to work, there has to be the pain of changing your identity. A, fa- a man shall leave his father and his mother. You have to abandon something and cleave to your wife and become one flesh. 
What does that mean? It means you have to crack, you have to break your previous identity to formulate, to form your new identity. And that's why it's difficult. And once we do that, the hope is that we'll have children, which we too will include under our own canopy, but not stop there. The great people of Jew, the Jewish, the, you know, the Judaism, your greatness is measured by how big are you. In fact, the name that is given for a great person in Judaism is Gavra Rabba, which means a large person, which in our days may be construed as, a, as an insult, right? You wouldn't say to someone, you're a very large person. Uh, but in Judaism, what it, what it means is, is that yourself is expanded. It's not just your body and your soul. It's your wife and your children, your neighbors, your community, the Jewish people, the entire world. Can you imagine what it's like to live in a world where the pain of any, anyone in the world you feel? Of course, that's something which is beyond us, right? You know, that was, that, that, that's the idea of Adam. Adam is incorporating of all, it's one entity which incorporates all of humanity. Uh, but what's the idea of what, what's Moses? What's Jewish leadership? Jew, like we just we had a whole talk about this, you know, where Moshe demonstrated this quality of the pain of all the Jews he felt, and he did everything he can to try to help others. We talked about we had a whole class on, this, on Jewish leadership, and we actually see how Rabbi Tiva's words really are so illuminating. This one mitzvah, love your fellow as yourself, really extends beyond to, to everywhere, every, every corner of Judaism. And indeed, Hillel was right. This is all of Judaism. Everything else is commentary. Everything else is fleshing this all out. It's indeed a gateway to all other gates of, 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 of Jewish leadership. You know, what does it mean to be a great leader? It means to feel the pain of others. How, why would you feel the pain of others? Why would you sh- sh- bear the burden of someone else's suffering? Well, because it's not someone else's suffering, it's your suffering as well. You know, I, I told someone recently, someone who asked me a question, it's doing it in mind. He's like, okay, if our goal is to fix the world, why are we observing Shabbos? Why don't we go to Africa and save thousands of kids? I said, well, first of all, why can't you do both? <laughs> like, why does it have to be a conflict? But I said, let's assume you're right. Let's assume you're right. Okay, well, let's take, the, take, take your assumption for granted. How much do you actually care about those kids? I said, there's been 300,000 fatalities in the Syrian war the past couple of years. Disappointing. Terrible, right? Of course. But what really upsets you more, that or if you're in traffic on the way to work? What have you expressed more pain about? When you stubbed your toe walking out of the shower or the fact that 300,000 people are where, what have you given more expletive laced tirades about? Right? If, if, if you really have pain, you stream out. You know, we've been in traffic and we're like, ah, oh, what's going on over here? But somehow, 300,000 people dying. We don't ever stream what's going on. We're like, oh, that's terrible. We get on a high horse, right? Oh, it's so terrible. But does it really cause us more pain than something minor happening to us? You know, um, the groan, the collective groan that happens on an airplane when the pilot says, okay, um, the engineer's coming. Then we're not sure. We have to check something. It'll be 45 minutes here in LaGuardia. We're like, oh. And I was like, oh, man. 
It's like four to five minutes, okay. But like, what do we actually feel when someone else has pain? And that the pain can be much greater. It's like, well, that's really sad. It's really sad, you know? And the reason why, why? Like, if there's human pain, it should be painful. Regardless of who the human is, the answer is, we feel our pain. The question is, what's us? Who is me, right? Who is as myself? Who did I include under this umbrella, under this canopy? That's myself as well. And the leaders of the people are the ones that they include many, many, many other people, self beyond themselves. That defines a, a, a Jewish leader. Kindness. Kindness we've talked about as a foundational quality uh, that really brings us to all other qualities. Well, what happens if you love others? What happens? You notice what's going on with them. We notice what's going on with ourselves, right? Everything that goes on to us, that happens to us, we notice. Well, what happens to other people? Sometimes we don't even notice. We don't notice when someone else is going through something. Why? Because that's beyond us. But what if it wasn't beyond us? We wouldn't ignore other people. We'd feel what they're going through. And if we really care about them, we'll try to help to improve their situation. So, Go ahead. Maybe you're going there, but if I cut myself and I hurt, I know I can put a Band-Aid on it and it'll be better. You know, I can't put a Band-Aid on Syria. True. That, I, I don't know what to do, so I'm like... That's true, stuck. that's true. And, 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 and I just brought this as an Even example. Bit, I don't know what to do. Okay. Uh, but the question is, how much does it actually bother us? Of course it bothers us. As humans, it should bother us. But does it compare to any minor inconvenience that we have in our lives? Of course it's worse. Everyone agrees that it's worse. But what causes me more pain? So that's the, I'm, I'm just saying, I'm just saying we, there's a long way for us to go until we care about all of Exactly. I, I wrestle with that. Yeah. And, and, and it's, to us, we're like, am I really that bad of a human being? Of course we care about that, but really, how much do we care? No, we care about it kind of like theoretically almost. It's a resiliency of human mind. Otherwise, if you would lose your sleep over everything that's going on in the world, you would just go mad. Well, or, or, we, or, you'd, be a great, or you'd be a great leader. So even if it's not everything in the world, that's, I, you know, I don't know, that's, that's, that's like atom level. But what about everything that goes on in your, in your neighborhood? Or everything that goes on in, in, in your community? You know, someone comes to you and says, okay, I, I need a job. Okay, well, so you say, oh, who should I call, right? But if, if your child needed a job, or if you needed a job, how would you behave? Try to behave the same way as if they're you. It's, it means, of course, the scales. I want to look at Abraham here for a second. Abraham is someone who displays greatness in, in different areas of life. Abraham, of course, is history's greatest uh, disseminator of monotheism, and, his, and history is also greatest paragon of kindness. Right? We're told the stories of Abraham's kindness, and it's, it seems hyperbolic. And the question is, is this just a coincidence? Is it just a coincidence that he happened to be very good at a lot of different things? Or perhaps they're related. I would say that his love of others, the fact that he included so many other people in his proverbial canopy, that propelled him to try to show them you know, truth in their lives, try to help them have more meaning in their lives. It was connected. It wasn't just it was disparate. Because he cared about so many other people, that 
cause them to try to help them, you know, become, have a more meaningful life. Happiness. Uh, you know, what, what, what distinguishes happy people from unhappy people? It's not circumstances. Certainly not circumstances. Because circumstances depend upon how you relate to those circumstances. The question of happiness is the question of are you going to find good in a situation or are you going to find bad in a situation? Right? We already have enough good in our lives to make us happy. The question is are we going to focus on what we have and that brings us joy and happiness and delight or are we going to look at what we don't have and then no matter what we have we'll still feel lacking. Character, of course, we spoke about this already earlier. So I'm just giving you a list of examples of how this idea spreads to other areas of life. And indeed, when Rabbi Akiva says to us, this is a foundational element of Torah, it really does uh, uh, disseminate, it does, it, it does proliferate uh, and, and into other areas of, 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 of Jewish life. Indeed, to uh, conclude this section, this segment, Learning to love others can be reasonably commanded by the Torah, especially because the Torah also shows you how to actually do it. It teaches you the formula. And the formula is, you want to love others, you got to find the good in them. Well, how do you find the good in them? You seek it out, step one. Step two, which is um, really the kind of the, what, what, what would happen by default is that, well, you have to love them as yourself. Give them the same courtesy. Don't do to others that that you don't want to be done to yourself. And ultimately, once they're included in who you are, once they're actually yourself, they're as yourself, it's because I love myself and thus I love whatever is included in myself. If you can extend your humanity, your you, your you, into other people, which is going to happen, we're going to, it's going to be foisted upon us if we want to have a happy marriage uh, and with children, once we break out of the shell, out of the cage that inhibits us from loving others as ourselves, it becomes dramatically easier to include others under that canopy. What about the... Con- and, and you, you can't just pick the Jews. You have to pick everybody. Well, ultimately it's for all of humanity. I would twice, say... Right? He, says it, he says it everybody and then he says... says well, I, I, I would say you probably start at home. You know, you start like Probably the first thing you do is you gotta love yourself, right? Most most of us hopefully will love ourselves already. But you start with your spouse, and you start with your kids, and you move to your neighbor, and to your community, and ultimately you want to love the entire world. Um, I would still say you, maybe you start with the Jewish people, or at least your Jewish community. You know, you start you start from what is mo- most you know what's easiest to do. That that you already have an affinity towards is easier to include them in your in your in your world. Right? I would say for sure you start with your spouse, and then your children, and then your community, and you move out. That doesn't uh, sound weird. I, I, sometimes maybe some people are crying out for more loving than others, or I'm dealing with suffering. You know, I mean, I feel compassion for people who are suffering more than people who are succeeding in life. Yeah, well, that that's very natural to feel. It's very it's very natural to feel compassion uh, and care and concern for those that need it. Of course, but, you never but that's really very that, that's very natural. But you never really know that person is succeeding. Um, they may have other things going for them as well. Yeah. 
Okay, what about the convert? So what are we told? We're told you gotta love the convert. You gotta love the convert, you gotta love the foreigner because you two are foreigners in a foreign land. Um, so we already know that we need to love the convert. Um, that he is already included uh, in uh, in the original mitzvah. So I, I think a few ways to answer this. I think uh, the simple answer is that we have to overcompensate for someone that we, ha- we would have a tendency to have a harder time loving. You know, someone looks a little different, they act a little different, they speak a little different background, it's not, it's, you know, they're not really sure how to do things, they're newcomers, and we have a tendency towards kind of being, you know, uh, you know being um, a tribal and um, to, to include others maybe a little bit different is harder. So perhaps the Torah is trying to overcompensate for those people that we may have a difficult time loving. Um, but perhaps there's a different approach here. And this really is going in, in continuing uh, in, the, uh, in, the, in the process that we have outlined thus far. Perhaps what the Torah is telling us, it's a way to do it. It's told, we're told, you love the convert because you yourself were, what does it matter? Love the convert. Stop there. Period of the story. Torah doesn't say, love your fellow because uh, whatever reason. It just says, it doesn't give us a reason. Why in one mitzvah we told, love your fellow as yourself, no reason is given. Another mitzvah, another mitzvah, love the convert because I'll tell you the reason. You were converts, land of Egypt, and therefore, perhaps, what the Torah is really telling us here is a way to love someone. It's not just a mitzvah, it's also a method we were foreigners. We were once the person who was a little bit different. We were once the outsiders. <coughs> and now we see an outsider. How do we connect to them? How do we, you know, how do we love them despite having an uphill battle? Perhaps what the Torah is telling us, we have to identify with them. Love them because you were once like that as well. And this too would be an extension of, lo- of loving fellow as yourself. Find commonalities between you and a person that you want to love. Find uh, an overlap. Find grounds for love by finding, by identifying with them, by empathizing with them, by feeling what they're going through. We all know the feeling of being the odd man out, of being by a party where we don't really know anyone and we kind of feel awkward, or being in a new environment, in a new school, or in a new company or a new business or a new synagogue or community or whatever and we feel a little bit different and we're not quite sure things are done and we know that's not, unco- that's not comfortable and what happens when we're on the other side of the fence and we see the newcomer walking in and we see that they look you know, a little goofy and a little awkward and we see that we, well if we love them as ourselves we remember we too were once like that you were also once a foreigner in a foreign land. You also once had to go through the pain, the discomfort that this person is going through. Identify with that. If you look at others and you find uh, a common ground between your life experience and their life experience, that will foster love between the two of you as well. Indeed, that's an extension of love your fellow as yourself. So I, I think this, this, this can be also understood as another method to achieve uh, this love which seems to be so uh, difficult for us to, you know, in, 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 today, in today's world. 
perhaps maybe a way to include someone in your world would be to say, okay, what are they going through? Oh, they're an outsider? Hmm, did I ever experience that myself? And naturally we feel a tendency, or we feel an affinity towards those who have experienced what we went through. And thus we can find common ground and maybe include them under our canopy, yes? Yes, of course. I yes, we don't love we don't love sinners. Uh, certainly, we don't love murderers. Um, we show zero compassion. There's certain people we show, show zero compassion for. Um, uh, people that uh, mur- uh, murderers, I would would certainly fall under those category. Uh, enemies of of the Jewish people. You know, we don't love Arafat or uh, uh, certainly not Hitler, of course. Um, well, there's like in Perkeo vote. There's like. I'm going to read some stuff today, like, he's talking about, like, all the positive qualities of a thief. He's, like, persistent, he plans, it's just like, you know, it's a thief, but he, like, lists all these, like, positive character traits. Well, and I'll, I'll tell you something even a little bit more radical. I'll say that, you know, if we have to admire the precision and the commitment of the Nazis. If we, you know... If we did anything as efficiently as they did, we'd probably be more successful at that. So does that sound heretical? I don't know, maybe. It sounds, it sounds bizarre, like it sounds, it, it sounds difficult. It's difficult for the ears to hear those words. Uh, but we, we have a, I, I, I'll say this, maybe this is a little offensive. I don't think it is, but I've, I've heard it from people that went to the Holocaust themselves. And they say that we're facing a, a spiritual Holocaust in today's Jewish world, especially in America. I think it's not, it's not hard to say. Well, we have millions of Jews in America that are very distant from Judaism. So certainly, they're not uh, being rounded up and, and tortured and killed and murdered brut- brutally, but there's a certain element of a Holocaust where there's vast numbers of people that are being disassociated from Judaism. That's a, that's, I heard my grandfather say that, and he suffered tremendously through the Holocaust. So I feel like I can say that as well. Um, but maybe we have to also look at methods that are unconventional. You know, um, I know Rabbi Weinberg. He would took a, there's a tour, a famous tour of aforementioned Rabbi Weinberg. They went to Auschwitz, and they had teams like that. that hundred rabbis going together to Auschwitz, and he said, he said, look at this. You know, they they were constantly improving their methods. Of course, the members of their barbaric methods, their heinous methods. But they said it's not efficient to use one bullet. So who wants to use one bullet? You have to come up with this gas and that gas and this shit and that and, and you know this subterfuge and maybe we have to do that with our with with, with the good. Let's take let, 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 let's take the methods and use that for good. We're trying to teach the world about morality, teach the world about God, teach the world about Torah, teach the Jewish people about Torah to, to, to do that. We have to constantly be tweaking and improving and, and, and be relentless in those pursuits. Does that mean that we love the Nazis? Of course not. I mean, Hitler was obviously a very persuasive speaker. So when he was a Torah scholar, there was that persuasive speaker. But one of the examples, for instance, Israeli Air Force in 1947, a lot of older planes that have the German made from Luftwaffe yeah. were used in the in war of 1947-49. Yeah, but I'm right. saying, yeah, but we want to so, be very careful to say that we, of course, it doesn't mean that we, we don't, those are not people that we love. But we, you know, we, we look for for how we improve our life, life of, of 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 the Jewish people in the world at large, and we look even towards bad people, evil people as well. 
But yes, to answer your question, Debbie, we do not love murderers. Absolutely not. We show zero compassion for them. Nothing. Absolutely not. Uh, we don't love rapists. Absolutely not. No compassion, no love for them whatsoever. But the ones that are convicted, right? No, not accused. Oh, of course. Yes, yes. Uh, everyone deserves. And by the way, that idea is a Jewish idea. The idea of, of equality under law is in Judaism is 3,500 years old. And in contemporary society, it's, it's very recent. The idea of, of getting a fair trial, a fair jury, uh, justice. But yes, of course, there should be justice for everyone. But someone who is a rapist, someone who is a murderer, someone who is a terrible person, we show zero compassion. And by the way, you know who's included under that? It's a verse in the Torah. The Torah talks about a, a masis. A masis is a spiritual murderer. He's someone who, is, who tries to rally the troops away from God and away from Torah and away from morality. Those people, the Torah says, we show no compassion for. It's actually a verse in the Torah. No compassion. Do not have compassion, do not empathize with them, do not have mercy in them. And there are even laws, uh, judicial process laws, procedural laws, that are waived for those kinds of people because we realize the, 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 the danger that they can uh, bring about is no less, in fact it's even worse, than, uh, than physical uh, uh, t- torment that can be uh, that, 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 that can be uh, promulgated. So it's like heretics in medieval Christianity? Uh, maybe. Um, it's, it, I wouldn't say it's heretics. It's, it's, more, it's, it's, it's heretics that go public. That try to, you know, like I think we could talk about the Messianic Jews in northern Israel, for example. Or even in the United States, there's a lot of it. The people that try to dupe the uninformed. And they have a church but they cover it with stars of David and they have all these Hebrew letters and they call it a synagogue, but it's a church. Some people like that don't, you know, that they're trying to, uh, you know, that they're trying deliberately to, uh, to dupe the uninitiated into abandoning Judaism, like that, we, that we show no compassion for those people. Absolutely not. Um, so yes, there are exceptions, of course. What about the last thing? Love God. And like we said, it's difficult for us to understand God, to comprehend God, to define God, to fathom, of course, what that means. Uh, But why is it difficult? We mentioned earlier, the reason why it's difficult is because it's beyond our comprehension. There are realities that to us are fixed, that are immutable, that cannot be tweaked or changed, and God is beyond that. And that's by design. That we are incapable of comprehending God. However, the ultimate goal of Judaism is, like we said, to fix the world. Well, we spoke about this previously, but to fix the world, the fundamental flaw that causes the world to be in need of fixing is the fact that the world has not recognized God. That is the one thing that solves all other problems. You fix that and by default, by extension, everything else gets fixed. So the goal of of, of our nation, the mission, the destiny of the Jewish people is to be the world to understanding, to acceptance of God. Not only that, there are ways for us 
to understand God, even if we can't truly grasp what that means. And I'll explain, I'll explain that in, 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 in a little bit. We have a Torah. We have mitzvahs. And we have God's world. We look at the world. A trillion different species they discovered uh, is the number this week. And we think about how vast that number is. How va- just how how just it's 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 a trillion. It's it's it rhymes with a billion and a million. But really, it's it's just beyond what we could even fathom. Besides that number, and there's a trillion distinct species in the world. What does that tell us about the creator of the world? It gives us a certain sense of, of awe when we understand just how vast this universe is. When we probe into the inner workings of what this world is composed of. When we look at, when we marvel at the wonder that is the human body. How everything works so perfectly. You eat food, and just automatically there's factories within you breaking it all down and sending it to wherever it needs to go and digesting it and taking the waste and removing it. And, and the fact that your heart's pumping 89,000 times a day without being instructed to do so, without anyone that we know programming it. It's all the Almighty just working for, for us even when we're sleeping. And you look at a tiny little bug and how it's so perfect. It's so ergonomically you know, uh, pristine. Everything works so perfectly. And you can imagine any engineer at NASA trying to re- replicate that. Not only that, that's self-replicating. You take a seat and you throw it on the ground. And you keep it there for six months and you water it. And something new sprouts out. And before you know it, you have a tree with more apples. And where does this come from? Is the soil edible? No. Is the seed edible? No. Where does this come from? It's, it's a miracle that happens every day and we take for granted. And you eat the apple, and you know what you get? You get a coupon for another tree. Where, where does this come from? This is miracles that we live and experience every day and we ignore. But if we spend time thinking and dwelling and probing and analyzing and pondering this, and we really examine and we get into the nitty-gritty, and we learn about just how the ants are all following, finding the way to the Oreo cookie, and how the fact that these tiny little, tiny ants, so small, everything works so perfect, and they're all working in unison, and they discover that there's a, um, a chemical that the original ant who discovers the cookie drops along the way. And then everyone just, they have, every ant has the ability to drop this little chemical along the way, organ number one. Organ number two, they have the sense to follow it. And they have the brains to do that. All in this tiny little speck. Where does that come from? It's just the handiwork of God is everywhere around us. And while we cannot understand God himself 
And, and that idea, the theological ideas, is very hard for us to understand. We see his handiwork. And we can really connect to God via his handiwork. Once we, we, we recognize how wonderful it is and how ludicrous it is to say that this all happened on itself, it's ludicrous, preposterous. A trillion species, you only have 3.5 billion years. Do the math. Work, work it out for me. <laughs> I, I, I give you all the licenses to do it. Just work it out for me. What, what happened? What happened and what happened next? How do we start with inanimate matter and get to where we are today with the trillion species? Just do the math. In 3.5 billion years. It's not possible. It's, it's preposterous. We like it because it gives us comfort. Well, you know, maybe God doesn't exist and, whew, you know, we're safe, even though that might be all subconscious. Uh, but that's what our society does, and there's always going to be an alternative. But if we actually just examine this and we see, wow, like, what a world. You know, the fact that I'm not even thinking, I'm just talking, right? Well, I am, I am thinking a little bit, right? But I'm not thinking about talking, and I'm able to create these sounds that we can't even quantify. And I just know automatically how to move my lips and my tongue and my mouth and my, my guttural and my teeth and my lips and everything like And you guys are able to interpret it because, you know why? Because there's sound barriers that are going into your ear that go in your ears. There's this little spiral, little, little bone that has fluid in it. And by the different sounds that I make with my mouth, your ears are interpreting it by the tiny microscopic hairs and how they swish and how they sway depending on the different vibrations of those fluids in that bone in your ear. And that sends messages to your brains and you understand what I'm saying. All that happened by itself? Really? And you're like, wow. What a world. It's as if the Almighty, this maybe a little bit of a poor way of saying, you know, dropped all these little Easter eggs out there. Right? Where, like, you know, um, you find, you discover him even though you discover his handiwork. It's like an extension of God, so to speak. Obviously not a, a literal extension. But God put these things out there for us to discover and through that develop a relationship with him. So yes, we may never, ne- never be able to theologically connect to him. Or maybe there are ways to do that as well. But we have a whole world of his handiwork that's right there, ripe for us to, to understand and, 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 and to gain an appreciation. Off track, this is off track. I know, but you don't have to touch it if it is bad. You once talked about blessings, everyday blessings, like a hundred blessings. Would those little things that you just enumerated on become part of the blessings? Well, it, well so you're right. So it, that is on topic. Um, we have mitzvahs. Uh, mitzvahs are God's instructions. If I told you I have instructions from the manufacturer how to change your oil, the manufacturer knows the best practices for the maintaining of your vehicle. So you want to listen to the manufacturer's instructions. The mitzvahs are the manufacturer's instructions for how to maintain, how to improve, how to develop, how to nurture the product, which is us. And you learn about mitzvahs and their role and how perfect they are and how if you were to study the book written in the 16th century that tells of the 248 different limbs 
and the 248 corresponding mitzvahs, and which limb corresponds to which mitzvah. And you see how with the observance of the mitzvahs, we are creating this, uh, this, this uh, spiritual uh, uh, replica of ourselves, which is going to be our spiritual existence, our spiritual body, if that, that doesn't make any sense, but just as a way of understanding it. That's our spiritual existence that is going to be us in the spiritual world. So it's as if we are building our human with every one of these 248 mitzvahs. And you see how it all fits, how it all connects and all fits, and how it's all so far ahead of its time. How we have mitzvahs that 3,000 years ago people must have thought was bizarre because it was so different than the conventional wisdom of the time. And society turns the corner, and finally they get around. The greater world gets around to things that we knew thousands of years ago. I always say this, um, I always talk about this. Now, in the 60s, the scientific world finally proved the very first word of the Torah. Once they were able to quantify the fact that the world is expanding, the idea of a static world that doesn't change became ludicrous. A world that was always in existence and will always continue to be in existence, that's not developing or changing, right, that was scrapped. Essentially, science finally got, after thousands of years, to agree to the very first word of the Torah, Beratius, that was beginning. This is a process. But you see how the Torah is just so far ahead of its time. And there are things that we say today, well... Uh, I don't know, man. The Torah is saying things here that we, our societies agree with, right? Uh, it's inhumane to give people lashes for sins. Well, is it inhumane to send people to 30 years in prison? Is that rehabilitation? Did people get rehabilitated? The fact that we have mass incarcerations in this, in this country uh, and what we actually gain from is very, very minimal. Well, we do gain to remove some violent criminals from the streets. But the fact that 95% of felonies that are released, felony offenders that are released end up being incarcerated for another felony uh, soon afterwards. So obviously our system doesn't work. You go to Singapore, where they have a system which is kind of similar to the system the Torah outlines. And you know what? If someone drops a, you know, a, that's maybe a bit excessive, but they piece of gum on the floor. They give him, like, they cane him. But you know what? No one drops pieces of gum on the floor. It obviously works. <laughs> it works. It's a system that works. So, but we, we say, no, we know what's best for someone. We know that putting someone in a box and keeping them for 30 years, that's best for humanity. It's best for them. That's rehabilitation. It's not rehabilitation. You beat him to a bloody pulp and let him go. And you know what? He'll be rehabilitated, be rehabilitated, and then there'll be 30 years of productivity, of crime-free productivity from that person. It'll be better for them, it'll be better for society, it's cheaper, you don't have to spend $60,000 a year per federal inmate. It's just, it makes sense. But no, uh, you know, this is wrong, it's, it's immoral. It's, what do we know about immoral? Isn't that immoral to keep someone in the box? I have a better option. Give people the option. You can either choose to have 
30 lashes or 30 years in prison? How is that immoral? You know what's what, what are the intimates going to choose? They'll choose the lashes. Option grounding or spanking. It's like, let's go. It's spanking. <laughs> <laughs> right? What are you, you going to choose? A couple of months ago, I read an article in some newspaper that talked about that and said the same thing. Let people choose. How is that inhumane? What happened to all the pro-choice people? What happened to the where's the pro-choice? I want pro-choice and incarceration. I want pro-choice with regards to incarceration. Let people choose do they want to be caned or to be incarcerated. Are we even still on topic of uh, the three loves? No, no. I'm yeah, not, well, I we are. <laughs> well, and I'll I, ask you afterwards. Okay, so but I think mitzvahs Right is another way that we can love God. This is how we got to, to it. And we see how the mitzvahs, they make sense, they're logical, they're ahead of their times, and we really, if we delve into it, we see how they build a world for us, a spiritual world, brick by brick. We're creating a spiritual world. Of course, that was a rant uh, about the incarceration, even though I stand by everywhere I said. Um, even the ones that don't make any sense. Well... And the idea of us having a recognition that, okay, so I would disagree with your question, not that they don't make sense, that makes sense to us. Right. Uh, the idea, the humility of saying there are things that I don't know. Remember, we learned about Rashi last time. Rashi says, a very important Rashi, my, my dad says, right? Very important Rashi is this, I don't know what this means. The Talmud says very clearly, Book of Brachos. A person should always regulate themselves to saying, I don't know. Isn't that a lesson as well, to know that there are some things you don't know? Isn't the lesson of, I don't know, those words being a very good answer to a question? It's how you, love, it's how you can love a spouse. A spouse will have, ask me to do something that doesn't make any sense, but I do it. I talk about flowers, buying flowers, right? Doesn't make any sense for men. You know, it's, and it's, like, the gold, it's, like, the, it's like the red heifer. It, it's the same thing. You do it because you're instructed to do it as what's right to do, and then you don't understand it. You know, that's a very healthy way to live life. Sometimes you don't know things. So explain to Elsie why I use the, the razor instead of the, or I use electric, electric razor instead of, yeah. because I'm not supposed to do that. You don't yeah. want me to, so. Yeah. How we, and that's fine. Way of loving God. And that's fine. And by the way, there's things in our society that are like that as well. It's as if our society, suddenly, everything makes sense. Now, a lot of things don't make sense. We do them anyhow, because that's just the way, th- that's the way life is. Not everything uh, is our uh, micro-brain able to fathom with regards to what God wants us from, from us. And lastly, we have Torah. Torah is God's mind. And we, unfortunately, our society or our, uh, you know, our education sometimes, uh, what did uh, Mark Twain say? He doesn't let his schooling interfere with his education, Right? You don't want your schooling to interfere with education. And that happens a lot, where our schooling interferes with our Jewish education. Because in the school, we're told uh, very rudimentary Judaism as kids. And then we kind of fixate on that. And we assume that that's all there is. What else could possibly exist out there? And yet, we've spoken about Torah as Torah being like the, as vast as the, as the ocean. But you know what? I was in the Pacific Ocean. And it was up to my ankles. It was. It was up to my ankles. It was in Venice Beach, California. It's up to my ankles. This is not a very deep ocean. And you know what? If you just stand 
on the outskirts, on the fringes of, on the valences of, of Torah, and you just dip your toe in, you're like, this is all there is. And the further you go in, the more you realize how deep it is. So indeed, the Torah is like that. That the more you study, and the more you plumb into the depths of Torah, the more you submerge yourself into Torah, the more you realize how little you know. Thus, we have this ironic reality wherein uh, a 13-year-old kid who just finished his bar mitzvah studies thinks he's exhausted everything. They are confident that they know everything they would ever need to know about Torah. Yet the people that spend 12 hours a day or 18 hours a day for 75 years studying Torah, they feel like they know nothing. And Rabbi Akiva could say, I'm nothing more than a shepherd of small animals in my knowledge of Torah. Rabbi Akiva knew more Torah than anyone of his generation. The Torah that we have today is all what we studied from Rabbi Akiva and his students. How is that possible? The answer is because the more you know, the more you realize how little you know. And when we put ourselves in that world, we see the vastness of God's Torah, or God's mitzvahs, or God's handiwork, we gain an appreciation of God himself. Like we said, we recognize the goodness in other people, we love them. We recognize the greatness, the vastness, the goodness of God, we love him. It's the same formula. How do you love someone? By identifying them with their qualities, by discovering their qualities. It's the same process with God. Unfortunately, the same malady that makes it difficult for us to love our fellow man, that we notice the bad and we ignore the good, we give to God as well. When something bad happens, we start questioning God. Uh, why did this thing happen to me? And where is God? And, but when something good happens, we say, oh, that's me. That's my might of my hand. I'm so brilliant. Genius. We have to flip the switch there. And you said blessings is a great example. We're supposed to do 100 blessings a day. What is a blessing? A blessing is a recognition of the fact that God loves us and cares for us and is good to us. That's what a blessing is. We do that 100 times a day because if we don't do that persistently, we're likely to fall into the pattern of noticing the bad that God does or the perceived bad that God does and ignoring the good that God does. Just like we have with other people. <coughs> Indeed, following the, the mitzvahs, they provide us the opportunities, blessings is a great example of that, to discover the good that God does for us. And uh, in conclusion, just to, to recap here, we indeed in the Torah, we find a method, a formula, a process by which we can love our fellows ourselves. Of course, it doesn't include all fellows, not everyone. We're talking about the most, most people. Because most people are a collection of good and bad. That's the reality. That's the way we are. Thus, the choice is mine as to what I want to identify. What do I want to discover? What do I want to seek out? What do I want to recognize in the other person's character? It could be the good qualities, the things that are admirable, the things that I should learn and use it to improve myself, the things that I can do, I can do to fulfill what Perkevo tells us, who is the wise person, he who le- learns from everyone. Shouldn't it say, who is the wise person, he who learns from people that know more than him, or people that are greater than him? Why are you learning from everyone? The answer is, is that everyone has something, some area where you can learn from. 
Thus, the wise person is indeed someone who recognizes the good in other people. Because he's the one who learns from everyone. Even the people that are in totality, in aggregate, worse than he is. Even those people have something to teach you. Indeed, that's another extension of this idea. And we see how Rabbi Kiva can say this is a, a critical element of, of Judaism. This is a foundational point of Torah. Because this brings us everywhere we need to go in Torah. How do we do that? We look for the good in others. We seek out the good for others. And when we find that, we label them with that and not with their mistake. Love them as ourselves. Give them the same courtesy that we give ourselves to ignore sometimes the mistakes and kind of hype the successes. Another method is to try to find common ground, to identify with them, to, to empathize with them, to feel like we have had common experience, to know what it's like to go through the difficult thing that they may be going through, to love them, to love the convert, because you too were a convert or a foreigner in a foreign land. And this principle indeed extends loving God, wherein we discover the good that God does for us and the, and the grandeur of, 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 of God's world and the, the wonderful things that he provides us in the form of Torah, in the form of, like we do with the blessings every day, the fact that he feeds us for free, the fact that all of us are only living because the Almighty allows vegetation to happen. No one, I haven't heard, I have no idea, how, how does it even work? How does the inedible, mixed with other inedible, sprayed with a third inedible, provide food? I have no idea how it would even work. I have no idea. It's all a mystery to me. But without that, we're all dead. We're all living in the good graces of the Almighty. The Thank Him. That, Isn't that lovely? The animals that feed well, yeah, the goodness of the earth, the grass that... Yeah, where does the grass come from? The animals eat the grass, we eat the animals, right? That stops happening, we're all toast. No, we're all Yeah, well, I mean, the only people that survive are the ones that have, uh, are those guys who have the bug out bags and, you know, the Y2K people with the... Uh, 10,000 cans of, uh, yeah, <laughs> of food in their basement. Um, but, you know, the, the, that, it's... So hard on us, Rabbi. <laughs> I fell for that myself. I built a whole day going shit about this. I was getting ready for 12 people to come on and live with us. <laughs> Not getting hard on you, but the, uh, that's the reality. And indeed, if we follow these principles, not only can it help us in our own relationships... It's how we love our spouses. It's how we love our children. It's why we love our spouses and why we love our children. It'll help us, you know, it's, it's, it's wonderful to live in a world where people are fantastic, where people are really lovely. Isn't that a nice world to live in? We choose which world we want to live in. Some people, if they notice the bad and they label people with the bad, everyone around them is just bad people. <laughs> and the other guy lives in the same neighborhood and everyone around them is wonderful people. Isn't that a better neighborhood to live in? Isn't that a better life to live it's our choice what we do. It's our choice if we're going to... Of course, that's not everyone. Let's not take this to its extreme. But most people have good about them and thus our life could be dramatically improved uh, by this. And indeed, to get back to where we started, it's remarkable that the Torah, you know, 3,500 years ago, just spells it out. How we can have fantastic lives and happiness and joy and kindness and leadership and all those things and wisdom... All that just spells it out. And like our study, yeah, love, I know what love is. I'll tell you. And then four or five divorces later, maybe, maybe, maybe you didn't have the secret. Is that possible? 
And I usually find, they find the people with the most relationship fails are the ones that are the quickest to try to give advice, right? They're the experts because they've, they've gone through it all. They're the experts. Why are they the experts? Those people should not be those people should not be given the microphone of telling us how to make relationships work. It's so bizarre. But that's what our society does. Either way, it's, it's nice to know that we could go back in time uh, to indeed go ahead uh, in, 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 in progress uh, in our lives. Uh, I thank you all for listening and I look forward to seeing you all next week. A lot of fun. Thank you, Rabbi. What's the topic next week? Uh, what's the topic? Oh, the Shabbat prayers. Yes. Very exciting. Uh-huh.